Welcome to the Christ Community Church Podcast. We hope you enjoy this week's message, that it draws you closer to Jesus and helps you become more like Him. 2 Samuel chapter 9. David asked, is there anyone remaining from the family of Saul I can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? There was a servant of Saul's family named Ziba. They summoned him to David and David the king and the king, excuse me. They summoned him to David and the king said to him, are you Ziba? I am your servant, he replied. So the king asked, is there anyone left of Saul's family that I can show the kindness of God to? Ziba said to the king, there is still Jonathan's son who was injured in both feet. The king asked him, where is he? Ziba answered the king, you'll find him in Lodibar at the house of Meshir, son of Amiel. So King David had him brought to him from the house of Meshir, son of Amiel, in Lodibar. Mephibosheth, son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell face down, paid homage and paid homage. David said, Mephibosheth, I am your servant. He replied, don't be afraid, David said to him, since I intend to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan, I will restore to you all your grandfather Saul's fields, and you will always eat meals at my table. Mephibosheth paid homage and said, what is your servant that you take an interest in a dead dog like me? Then the king summoned Saul's attendant, Zebun, and said to him, I have given your master's grandson all that has belonged to Saul and his family. You, your sons, and your servants are to work the ground for him, and you are to bring in the crops so your master's grandson will have food to eat. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will always eat at my table. Now Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba said to the king, your servant will do all my lord the king commands. So Mephibosheth ate at David's table just like one of the king's sons. Mephibosheth had a young son whose name was Micah. All those living in Ziba's house were Mephibosheth's servants. However, Mephibosheth lived in Jerusalem because he always ate at the king's table. His feet had been injured. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, Christ Community. Thanks for having me back. Really appreciate being here. My name is Mark Grappengator, and I'm a church planter, a pastor here in the area in our neighborhood in Hamden South. My house is like just right over there, so it was a long commute uh, this morning to get over here. I almost couldn't have pulled it off for Brandon this morning, but uh, we moved here uh, to Denver in 2018 to start a church. Uh, that was God's call in our life, and it still is. 
And you guys have walked alongside us in this effort, and you guys have been great uh, in relationship with us, to be friends with us, to invite me to preach, which is hugely wonderful. Uh, I didn't have a, kind of a preaching appointment for a few months, so, you know, to not be out of rhythm uh, as we continue to do this, just by being in the neighborhood and us knowing that there's another faithful church to God and the gospel of Jesus Christ to have you guys with us here in the neighborhood is incredibly encouraging to us. So thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, the Goads have been awesome friends to us as well. And so when Brandon asked me uh, if I could fill in, I wondered if I would be able to give you guys an update about where we're at and what we're doing uh, at the table. That's the church that I'm planting. And he said, yes, that would be great. So I'd love to tell you about that and share uh, the vision with you this morning. Raise your hand if you've ever been a part of a church plan, ever, ever helped start a church before. A few of us in the room. The truth is, church plants, all churches start out as church plants. So even Christ Community was a new church at one point, and it was planted to be able to reach the neighborhood, so see people come to know Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior here in this place. So all of us, most of us, have been a part of at least a new church at some point or another, even if it's 50 or 60 years down the road. All of us, it's my personal conviction that all of us should be involved in starting a church at some point in our life through prayerful, financial, or personal involvement. Like conceiving, raising, and birthing a child, not in that order, uh, conceiving, birthing, and raising a child is the most fun as well as the most challenging thing you may ever do. The question is why? You guys are a faithful church. You guys are here in the neighborhood. Why do we need more new churches, or why do we need new churches in the neighborhood? Well, research statistics show that new churches bring in more non-Christians, unchurched, and de-churched people through their doors than established churches. And so we continually need to be establishing new churches because as culture moves and the trends away from being a Christian and the, the Christian culture that maybe we understood that we grew up in shifts more, we need to have more churches. Church plants in particular are primarily focused on inviting people who are not right now a part of God's family to be a part of God's family. So we need to continually be starting new churches even when it seems like there is already a strong church presence. This neighborhood in particular, though, doesn't have even what I would consider a strong church presence. We have about one evangelical church for every 10,000 people in this area, which tells us that less than 1% of people go to church on a Sunday morning. So we are endeavoring to invite more people, more and more people to come to church. And established churches are always benefit from new churches being started in their neighborhood. It's that... Um, it's called the Starbucks effect. So when a Starbucks goes into a neighborhood, even the local coffee shops benefit. Because maybe I don't really want to go to Starbucks. Maybe that's not my jam. But I'll go to the long-established uh, coffee shop that's there as well. I am not Starbucks. I don't drink there. Don't put me in that box, please. So this morning, I want to give you a, a, a biblical picture of what church planting looks like. 
And more than that, I want to give your eyes vision. I want to set your hearts on fire for what church planting could be, how you could maybe be involved in it, but also how you can be involved in the work God is doing right here at Christ Community to call people into his family. So how does one start a church? It's actually incredibly domestic and incredibly profound. One starts a church by voluntarily, intentionally, and sacrificially inviting people to your table so that they become a part of the family of God. By voluntarily, intentionally, and sacrificially inviting people to your table so that they become a part of the family of God. Let me set the scene for this passage that Terry read for this this morning. You did great on the names, by the way. It it took me several times to get it right. King David is at the height of his power. The Philistines are no longer a threat to him. Israel stands tall and established politically, economically, militarily, and religiously. And suddenly David remembers the covenant that he made with his friend Jonathan. This Jonathan was the the son of the previous king Saul, and if you know the story, Saul and David didn't always get along. So David asks if he can show kindness to any of Saul's descendants. He says, is anyone still alive in Saul's house that I can show them kindness? This is highly unusual for a king to do. At this point in David's reign, he should be asking, is anyone left that I can, that I can murder? Can, is there anybody else that I need to get rid of to make sure that my throne and my kingdom is established here? This is typically a time for retribution and revenge, but instead of this, it's kindness that we see on David's heart. And it turns out there is someone left in Saul's family, Mephibosheth, Jonathan's son. Mephibosheth was five five years old when Saul, his grandfather, and Jonathan, his dad, were killed in battle. And in the chaos of fleeing the castle, the nanny was carrying him, and she fell and injured Mephibosheth's feet in such a way that he was crippled for the rest of his life. He went into hiding, perceiving very rightly that if he showed his face again, he would be killed. Whoever the next king was to take over would surely end his life. And so when he is summoned to the king, dread and despair hang in the air. And Mephibosheth falls to his face in front of David and says, I am your servant. And what he would have expected David to say, off with your head, be done, your your life is over. David instead says, do not fear. And he shows kindness to him. He shows kindness to Mephibosheth in three ways. He honors the covenant with Jonathan. He restores the land of Saul to Mephibosheth. And he commands, he commands that he will eat at his table always. This kindness is voluntary. It's intentional. And it's sacrificial. David voluntarily made his covenant with Jonathan. He he didn't have to, uh, and then he voluntarily kept it as well. Jonathan never would have known. Saul would never have known if he fulfilled his covenant. But when his kingdom was settled, he intentionally sought out Mephibosheth to show kindness to him. Everybody would have been perfectly all right with David enacting revenge. That was the, the culture of the day, but instead he chose kindness. 
and he did so sacrificially. David gave Mephibosheth his grandfather's lands back to him. This would have been more than enough to provide for Mephibosheth. Even the text tells us of all the, the fruit and the grain and everything would have been wonderful for him. He was well provided for, but David goes even further by declaring that he will eat at his table always. Mephibosheth always eats at the king's table. No longer does Mephibosheth have to be dependent on the generosity of others, taking care of him, providing for him, hiding him, keeping him safe. But now he has instant wealth, provision, and status in the kingdom. This kindness that David shows him isn't mere kind of casual niceness. It's not greeting card sentimentality. This kindness has materiality to it. It's the Hebrew word hesed. Hesed is often translated loving kindness. It is life-sustaining grace. It characterizes covenant relationships. It's the word that God uses throughout the Old Testament in his covenants, but it also surpasses them. It's this loyal love that David has for Mephibosheth. The need for hesed is always emphasized where it it uh, seems unnatural where it would be voluntary. When all the cultural momentum and expectations would have been towards revenge, Hesed changes the course. Hesed is intentional because it works for the good of others. It sees beyond whatever society designates a person to be and acts to affirm a God-created identity. Hesed is sacrificial because it's not convenient. It necessitates resources and energy to sustain life rather than to take it. Hesed love, David shows, is inviting someone to your table. David declares that four times in this chapter that Mephibosheth will eat at the king's table always. David just gave Mephibosheth wealth and provision. He gave him land and servants and yet he still says, you're going to eat at my table always. Now, we could interpret this as keep your friends close, but keep your enemies closer. That's not what David's doing here. See, eating together in the ancient Near East was the most intimate thing you could do with someone outside of the bedroom. Sharing a meal together establishes relationships. It establishes covenants. It establishes family. See, David isn't just restoring land of Mephibosheth. He's inviting him into his family and making him a prince. And extending this hesed love to Mephibosheth, he's making an enemy become family. Hesed love is voluntary, it's intentional, and it's sacrificial love. Eugene Peterson said on this passage, we need to reinstate the story as a great love story in society's atrophied and declining capacities of love. How do we do that? I think we do it by quite simply inviting people to our tables. At our church plant, the table, we are endeavoring to restore this story in today's culture. Our vision, the reason we exist, is to provide a place at the table of God's grace. 
our mission or how we do this is to invite people into a relationship with Christ and form a community that worships and serves together for the transformation of the city. Our values are invitation, formation, and transformation. So we invite people to worship Jesus, form relationships, and transform the city by serving it. Our unofficial purpose statement, my personal mission statement, is that we want to eat and drink people into the kingdom of heaven. This is what Jesus did. He was called a glutton and a drunkard. I'm working on that reputation. The son of man came eating and drinking, and we just want to be like Jesus. This is often what we call hospitality today, but what we typically understand as hospitality is that more popular definition of entertainment, the Williams-Sonoma kind, the food network kind of having everything in its place and having every need taken care of for every guest and cooking multi-course meals and all of these things, which is something I deeply love to do. But this isn't hospitality solely based on what Scripture says. Hospitality in Scripture more resembles this hesed love that David has. Hospitality in the Greek, in what, we, in what the New Testament was written in, is the word philozenia. Philozenia is literally translated love that turns a stranger into family. Henry Nouwen defined hospitality this way. Hospitality means primarily the creation of a free space where a stranger can enter and become a friend instead of an enemy. This is that hesed love that David showed Mephibosheth. Hospitality is voluntarily, intentionally, intentional and sacrificial, and we are endeavoring to turn strangers into family at the table. We do this in a variety of ways, but I want to highlight five for you this morning. I know five sounds like a big number. It's not. Don't worry. First thing we do is prayer. Uh, every uh, Tuesday night for the past uh, year, just over a year now, we have been praying intentionally over Zoom with friends and neighbors. We have been praying for one another. We have been praying for our neighborhood and for our city. We have been praying for the needs in our own family and the needs of the families that are around us. It's become one of the highlights of our week so that we, even when we travel, thank, thank God for Zoom, that we can still get on and pray with one another. I walk the neighborhood. I pray for peace. I pray for those who are moving into the neighborhood and those also who are moving out. Prayer reminds us that we are joining in with what God is doing, and so it forms the foundation of the work that we do. It's been incredibly transformative in our lives. We invite you to pray. We'd love if you would pray for us. Second thing we do is intentional invitation. We are regularly inviting people over to our homes. We host play dates, we host family barbecues, we have happy hours, wine tastings. We have just guys come over and drink some beers in the backyard. We have women come over and just hang out as well. It's something that we love to do. We have families just join us for dinner just, just because. Stacy, my wife, will text some families to join her and the kids at the park to play over when, you know, when school's not happening and during the summer. These are all incredibly casual 
but we do it with intentionality to deepen those relationships because by eating together, by spending time together, our families inevitably become woven together just through these everyday invites that we have. There's a sense of belonging and friendship and love. I think everybody wants to feel like they belong. I know we do. We started a launch team in August, the third thing that we did, we have done so far. Uh, this launch team is here, it's a group of people to help us get public services started. And so we gather twice a month to grow in our understanding of how God loves us and how we can love our neighbors as well. And it's simple things like knowing their names. Who are the people that live around you? We've had monthly worship services as well. In December, we did a lessons and carols service, which tells the story of Christ's birth. We invited neighbors and friends. We had Christians and non-Christians. We had interested and completely uninterested uh, people come. Some left in the middle of it, which is quite all right. And afterwards, we had a party. We filled two fire pits uh, which is illegal in Denver, don't tell anyone, uh, with uh, fragrant wood and pine cones and spices. And we gave the kids s'more kits and people baked cookies and hung out and we had mulled wine and people were there for a couple of hours just hanging out in the front yard. And it was a fantastic, awesome time. It was a celebration of who Christ is, even if the people didn't know that they were celebrating him. We, fourthly, have creatively shared the hope that we have in Jesus. Do you guys remember back? Take a moment. Go back to 2020, if you can, like a decade ago, right? In the beginning of COVID, it was beautiful outside, and everything began to lock down. And so people were walking the neighborhood just to get out of their houses. And for whatever reason, God brought spring early. But Easter was happening, and we couldn't do church services. We usually throw a big party for those who don't have friends and family nearby to invite them over, and we roast lamb and have, you know, scalloped potatoes and all the traditional things like this. Um, and we knew we weren't going to be able to do that. Furthermore, on Easter itself, it snowed. It was horrible. That was like the one snow we got uh, that year at the very end. But people were walking because the neighborhood was beautiful. And I remembered an art show that I had seen done before by uh, an artist in Portland named Scott Erickson. It was called Stations in the Street. And it's a, it's a new take on Stations of the Cross. So the last hours of Jesus' life he depicted through art. And so I took this, these 12-ish stations or so, and printed them at FedEx three foot by four foot, and I pasted them down on the sidewalk so that people, as they were walking by, would see them. And I made prayer guides, and no one took them. But they were able to see the art that was there, and they were able to see Christ's heart for them. And so we did that in 2020. We did it again in 2021, but not before people, non-Christians came to me and said, are you going to put the art down again? We'd love to host a, a, a poster again on our sidewalk. And so it opened up great conversations to have with them as well. We had twice as many houses host a poster uh, this past year than we did the first year. 
last thing we do is we throw parties. I love to throw parties. It is, um, it makes my heart come alive. I love to fill up my house with like 75, 80, 100 people over in our house. Praise Jesus allows for that as well. I believe Christians should be known as the ones who throw the best parties. We have so much to celebrate, and yet our reputation is completely the opposite. This is another personal mission of mine to reclaim that reputation. It is my goal in life that our reputation for celebration and feasting would go before us so that others would say, if you get an invitation to the Grappengators, you should go. And our reputation has begun to precede us. So back in January of 2020, we thought we were on the move to be launching, to be starting some small groups and inviting people into our home uh, for um, Bible studies and kind of forming that launch team that we only just uh, formed this past August. Well, things turned, but uh, we were approached uh, to be able to host a party for the school auction. So our, our kid, our, my oldest son goes to Southmore, and our, the rest of our kids will go there as well. And so people buy tickets for, for the auction, uh, during the auction, and then they go to and host a party. And the people who were typically regularly hosting this party said they couldn't do it again. Usually it's a pig roast. It's something I love to do. I did a, I've done pig roasts um, for about the past 10 years now. Um, and so it's something I love to do, but I thought what we need to do is go even farther than that. I want to cook through the whole pig. This is a, I have a background. I've worked in restaurants. It's something I've done before. And so this wasn't like, you know, you know, <laughs> I wasn't making my wife do it. I was doing it all, all myself. And so we decided to call it everything but the oink because they were going to eat everything but the oink. So we had to delay the party that was originally kind of auctioned off in April of uh, 2020, and we actually hold, held it a year later in April of 2021. So I took the whole week to prepare the food. Uh, we curated a playlist. We paired wines with it. We batched cocktails. We cleaned the house, secured a babysitter, and we printed up a menu. And the whole week I was preparing the food, I was praying I prayed over everything that I made. I prayed that people would see and taste the extravagant love of Jesus, that Hesed love. And so that Saturday night, we had 30 people walk into our house, and they were greeted with a cocktail. They were given, uh, we had a, a cheese board out for them, and then they were served eight courses of porcine goodness. We had pighead croquettes. We had everything with the oink. We had pighead. I did a BLT salad. I had asparagus with prosciutto, soy glazed pork ribs, chili Colorado, pasta bolognese, pork loin with collards and pimento cheese grits. I was in Atlanta before coming out here. I'll tell you, like, you can't get good collards up here unless you come to my house. So, uh, we, for desserts, we had bacon brownie, we had bacon apple empanadas and maple cheesecake. I had help, I didn't do all of this myself, but it was extravagant, it was abundant, it was excessive, and it was entirely unnecessary. It was voluntary, intentional, and sacrificial, just like Christ has said love for us. We never did a big gospel 
presentation. Instead, we had an invitation. We let, we let the invitation of sharing our table be the presentation. And throughout the night, people would say, are you a chef? I'd say, no, I'm a pastor. And they didn't know what to do with that. It was awesome. Stacy and I, though, were able to share our hearts and who we are and what we're doing. But equally as important, we were able to just demonstrate it through our hospitality. The last people left at 1.30 in the morning. And they asked us to host another party uh, for the upcoming auction again. It sold out. We had 40 people that we hosted in September. We did chicken that time. It was a little different, a little more open for people who don't eat pork as well. I'm kind of glad that I don't have to do it for another year. It was kind of a lot. But uh, we loved being able to do it. Now, at this point, it would be really easy for me to say, you need to be like me. You need to host 100 people in your home every month. You need to be like David. You need to invite your enemies over and the sons, the grandsons of your enemies over. But this isn't prescription. This is an invitation. See, on our wall next to our dining table where we have a family meal every night, we have this beautiful painting of the Trinity by the Russian iconographer Andrei Rublev. And in it, he depicts three angels who meet Abraham under the Oaks of Mamre as is set in Genesis 18. And there's bright blues and these calming yellows, these deep greens and reds that really draw you into the, the painting. And as the three angels representing the Trinity sit around the table, dining with one another, their eyes gazing and their heads bowed in deference towards one another, kind of depicting unity and peace and love. There's a ton of symbolism in this painting. But what Andre Rublev gets so keen is here in the middle of the painting, right when you stand in front of it, is an opening for you to be welcomed at the table of God also. This is an invitation to join in the life of God. See, here's the truth. The true host of the table is Jesus. Through the power of the Holy Spirit, the table is where we are invited into the life of God the Father that he offers us through the life, death, suffering, and resurrection of Jesus the Son. Every time we sit down at the table and pray thanksgiving over our meal, we are acknowledging the gift that has been set down before us. Every time we host a party, we acknowledge that it is Christ, through his Hesed love, showing us true hospitality. While we were yet sinners, Paul writes, enemies of God, Christ died for us. Jesus was sent so that we may be a part of of his resurrection family. Throughout Jesus' life, Jesus, uh, he was invited to the tables of others, right? Pharisees and tax collectors and sinners. But at the Last Supper, he showed us what it would take to form his own family, his voluntary, intentional sacrifice. God didn't have to send his son to redeem the world. He wanted to. He wanted to recapture the closeness that he had with Adam and Eve, with humanity at creation. 
This is what we celebrate in communion. This is what we celebrate at the Eucharist. This is what we're able to continually do throughout our weeks when we remember that Christ died for us. N.T. Wright said, When Jesus himself wanted to explain to his disciples what his forthcoming death was all about, he didn't give them a theory. He gave them a meal. We are all invited to the family where Jesus is the host. It's Hesed love that Jesus has for us when he invites us to his table. It's not mere sentiment. It has flesh and blood. It took flesh and blood to demonstrate his love for us. At his table, we find that we are a part of a new family. We have belonging. We are known. We have a resurrected family that's based on the, blood, the bread and the wine that Jesus serves us as his body and blood. And it's this invitation that we long for you to heed. Church planting is voluntary, voluntarily, intentionally, and sacrificially extending God's chesed love through hospitality. It's ordinary and it's extraordinary. It's eating and drinking. It's family dinners and it's extravagant parties. And we want you to be a part of it. We would, I would ask if you would pray for us, please. Remember us in your prayers. We're hoping to start weekly services in March, something that's been delayed over a year now in our own hearts and what we wanted. But pray especially for our neighborhood. Pray for your neighbors. Pray that people would be hungry enough to find a place at the table of God's grace. Let's pray. Father, we come here to worship you because you have called us into your family. We come to get to sing your praises uh, because of who you are, a good father who longs to see his children gathered back to him. You sent your son so that we would know how deeply your love runs for us, that, you, that he would give up his own life for us to be able to find life in you. By the power of your Holy Spirit, we pray that you enliven our hearts. Remind us of this love that you have given us. Help us to tell others about it. Help us to open our homes and our tables to invite people to join us as a part of your family. We pray these things in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Thanks for tuning in to the podcast this week. For more information on Christ Community Church in Southeast Denver, visit ChristCommunityDenver.org.